Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns. This is episode 119. 119. This may be a little shorter. We'll see. Um, didn't have a lot of questions come in. Uh, also, want to talk about you know last podcast after I put it up and listened to it to do my my quality check. I noticed that the sound was was goofed up. I don't know what really caused that. Um, it may, have been, it may have been my cheap equipment, or it may have been, you know, maladjusting my cheap equipment. But anyway, um, hopefully I have it rectified for this one. I'll, I'll check it as soon as I can. But anyway, if you do have questions for the next podcast, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. Or leave them on Podbean, which is our carrier that we post all this stuff on. So uh, anyway, that is the that is the introduction. A um, couple of quick things. Obviously, everyone is talking about the Rittenhouse deal. And as you remember, right after it happened, I said if the jury looks at any jury that looks at that video, he's going to walk. And, and that's essentially what happened. Um, you know, one of the debits and credits of living in modern society is if you do something, there's going to be people videotaping it. There's even going to be drones overhead. They even had drone footage that the prosecution tried to manipulate to make it look like he was pointing a rifle or some. There's some nonsense with all that. Um, but, you know, the thing about it is to know, to know, what to know is that you have to assume almost everything you do is going to be filmed so if your recollection does not match the video you you might be in trouble uh that's that's one of the big takeaways from that the other takeaway is if you see this as a victory you're not seeing enough the fact that this guy was even brought up and charged much less dragged through a a cord and everything else was an absolute abomination he never should have been on trial and i've never been on trial but i can only imagine that that is an excruciating experience and uh it's going to take up well with him it took a year of his life and it, of course it changes things but he never should have been brought up on any kind of charges and what's disturbing is the prosecutors knew it they knew they didn't have a case Yet they're trying to get, quote, a win, quote, unquote, like this is some sort of sports competition and not justice. So we need to see justice. And part of that is just a commitment to the truth. If you're the defense and you know your guy did it, well, give him a defense. But if when he's found guilty, you know, you know, he's guilty. And that's the that's the deal. Same thing with the prosecution don't prosecute an innocent person a person you know did not commit the crimes that you're charging them with and uh we just have lost that it's this it's this winner take all mentality it's the i've got a win 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 and they don't really care justice justice is not about winning justice is about the correct verdict and even even charging someone in the first place the the evidence they had they never should have charged him and everybody knows it everybody knows it and then you have the senilic 
person who was a, at that time a candidate now this this unfortunate soul is the president a serial bungler named joe biden who everybody has nicknamed brandon <laughs> let's go brandon you know brandon is a fool brandon you know that one of the things that's been said about him is he's on the wrong side of every decision and every issue he was against going after bin laden and and it goes all the way back through his senate career and his vice presidential time and and look at the decisions he's made look at the wreckage and carnage he's caused as president he's he's nothing more than a serial bungler and in this case he bungled it even worse he calls the guy something he's not and he chimes in with the rest of the media distortions that are there and you know these distortions could have got him convicted if there hadn't been that video uh, who knows what the jury would have would have believed but we know he did not cross state lines he had actually been in Kenosha because he worked there as a lifeguard and with, then he was the the next early the next day he was taking graffiti off a building so he didn't he didn't arm himself and then come trudging across state state lines which I always thought was funny because how did those other how did those rioters get there? Are you telling me that those those three dirtbags he shot and and all the people around them that they're all Kenosha dis they're disenchanted Kenosha citizens? No, they were they were obviously brought in by some probably some Soros backed organization, the same kind of people who deliver bricks and frozen water bottles that get thrown at the police, you know. Um, but anyway he did not cross state lines to cause trouble he was already in kenosha the other lies are that he was illegally armed and it turns out the rifle he was legally armed he was allowed to have that weapon in his possession so he was legally armed and that he was the other one which is kind of similar but it's a different different deal was that he was in possession of an illegal weapon and of course they disapprove that you know the weapon was entirely legal um it wasn't a short-barreled rifle an unregistered short-barreled rifle and, you know so the, the prosecution were fools and you know that <laughs> i hate to say that that guy binger i hope he has i hope he's like a amateur carpenter or plumber or something else because that that boy needs a whole new line of work you know I, i'm sorry if your name is thomas binger and you're that prosecuting attorney in kenosha hey hey dude you need to find another line of work because you stink as an attorney you stink to high heavens <laughs> and and so you know this is the time where you need to do a career change just saying just that just a good piece of advice um then to say that it wasn't self-defense when clearly it was self-defense to say it was racial when it clearly wasn't racial and in fact the only real inference there are two inferences of race number one the several days earlier the person who was shot but not killed but was widely reported killed but he's still alive <laughs> so he wasn't obviously wasn't killed he's still alive um but the person who was shot was a black person shot by the police and you know that that's a whole different case that's a whole different deal as to what the specifics and all that are
But the only other racial aspect was the first guy who was shot, this Rosenbaum character, who, yeah, child molester, psycho, had just been released from a mental hospital, restraining order against him. What a psycho. What a nut. He was calling everybody, regardless of who they were, I guess, he was calling them the N-word. So that's the only other inference of race. So he was the only guy who used that. And, and again, he was using it just as a pejorative against people he didn't like. Nothing. He wasn't obviously using it against their race because he, you know, they were all white people. So I don't know. I don't know why you would use that. So, but he was crazy. He's, he's wackadoodle. He's a psycho. And uh, when he attacked somebody, he got what he deserved. I mean, he, you know, face it, can't feel sorry for him. Feeling sorry for him is something that I just don't have that bone in my body to feel sorry for a psycho who's who's trying to kill somebody and then gets smoked in the uh, process. Just don't have it. So you have you have all these things. And of course, if you saw the Tucker Carlson interview, which you know I don't know how much of that he if he if he was coached, he was brilliantly coached. That is probably the most brilliant interview. And it, and it definitely was the grand slam. It wasn't a home run. It was a grand slam home run because he remained calm and he focused it on what it's really about. This was about self-defense. You either have the right to self-defense or you don't. And, and you know, the prosecution was saying some psycho stuff like, hey, you should have just taken his beating. Really? You know, there have been people who've been killed. There was, uh, in opposition to that on, on some discussion thing, there was a, a story brought up where a guy had been hit in the head by a skateboard, attacked somebody, swung a skateboard, hit him in the head and killed him. A skateboard, like any other blunt object, can kill you. Um, taking a beating is just not the, is just not the answer. It's just not the answer. You have a right to self-defense. To tell this guy Binger is so stupid, he doesn't get it. What Binger doesn't get is you, you could take any NFL lineman and he could beat Binger senseless. I mean, just beat him like like a, you know, like what is the old thing? Like a redheaded stepchild. But he could beat him like a drum. Binger probably would not survive that kind of a beating, nor would anybody else. You can't just take a beating. And especially, especially if you're older, um, you know. I told you I had cataract surgery. I've had a few other. I've had a few other bad injuries, and it's like I'm not going to take a beating from a guy who's 20 or 30 years younger than me because that's just the right thing to do. Because really, using lethal force is a wrong thing to do. No, I'm sorry. If you swing a skateboard at me, you're going to answer to something. A mechanical advantage that I will bring to the party. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. You know, they tried to criticize him. He brought brought a gun to a fist fight. Sounds smart to me. <laughs> That's <laughs> That sounds smart to me. You know, uh, it's, it's just the way it is. But they tried to portray the guy as a, a white supremacist, militia, vigilante, and he was none of those things. Why would they, why would they do that? And... If they will do that to some, you know, kind of the apple-cheeked, chubby kid from Kenosha, they'll do it to you. They'll do it to me. They'll do it to anyone. 
we live in a society where it's 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 no quarter given there is no surrender there is no peace i mean if you get on these people's wrong side they will not they will not stop to destroy you and we have become polarized into into a society where this is taking place and if you think the fascist environment is somebody else's problem if you think the fascist environment won't touch you <clears throat> I can tell you a little story about where I work where I work at first they encouraged everyone to get vaccinated and we all did January and February last year when these things became available we were vaccinated we work under contract the US government okay uh, they made a big deal then all of a sudden they were making a big deal about people who were unvaccinated now at that time you could still be unvaccinated and they couldn't do anything to you but they slowly turned down the thumb screws on everybody who wasn't vaccinated and the Brandon mandate where the, the senilic old man the old fart came out and said everybody needs to be vaccinated and uh you know all of that came out and so then they forced everybody to get vaccinated so there were a couple of people i work with they weren't vaccinated they had to get vaccinated or they're going to lose their job just that simple most people at the end will just say ah, okay i'll take the vaccination that's what they did now a couple of things have been added to this um now you have to carry proof of vaccination that's no big deal you got a smartphone you can take a picture of your vaccine card which is good because i'm not exactly sure where that original vaccine card is you know these were cheesy little cardboard cards that were never designed to be you know your identity and pass papers for the rest of your the rest of your fucking life yet the brandons in the world don't know this brandon and his cohorts don't know this so you know yeah where did the little piece of paper go well i don't know but i have a photograph of it which they will accept now there's this written dec declaration i think it's called the dd form 3150 and the 3150 has to be signed by you and it's a declaration that i have been fully vaccinated and i understand under penalties and perjuries of law that that i you know not only do you have to plug that pluck on there that you've been vaccinated and sign the thing but you also have to check the box saying that you know i'm disclosing this under the per penalties of perjuries so some legalistic bullshit nonsense so okay that we we sign those and then we we send them back because everybody's vaccinated so it's no big deal now they're saying well you have to carry both of those things on you your vaccination card and this declaration you know so that the apparatchiks of the third reich can and and they say you have to show this to people who demand it and that's government employees and military members they can just come up to you and say papers papers and you got to show your papers you know just like the gestapo 
just like the, you know, I don't know what they do if you don't have it. I mean, you know, do you ever have anything completely on? I mean, if you carry the vaccine card in your wallet, about three weeks later, you don't have a vaccine card anymore. This other piece of paper is just a piece of paper. And we've already turned these things in. So they have a book of them somewhere. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Now, now it's going to be where if I have to carry it on me, I'm not putting it in my pocket, but I might slip it underneath my uh, skivvies and carry it next to my butt cheek. And they can uh, they can look at it from there. And there's other there's other nasty places I can put it too. maybe the bottom of my shoe or something. You know, it's 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 Gestapo tactics. They've turned vaccines and, and they know we're all vaccinated. And they know that we have the, the cards and the proof. We've turned this stuff in over and over and over again. And yet they keep demanding it. And they keep demanding more. To the point now where we have to carry proof of vac- vaccination around with us everywhere. We have to carry it everywhere. And so that's, the, that's how the, the Nazi system of control just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And they demand more and more. Now they're demanding, now they're demanding that, well, you may say right now you're fully vaccinated, but have you had the booster? Because if you haven't had the booster, you're not fully vaccinated. So they, they keep moving the goalpost on this thing. So I, I don't know where this ends. It, it seems like where it's going is you're going to have to carry these things for the rest of your life. You're going to have to get a booster every year and prove it. And you're going to wear a mask because they're not coming off the mask thing anyway, even for everybody who's this, that, and the other thing. No matter how fully vaccinated you are, no matter how many boosters you've had, no matter how many pieces of paper you've signed and carry around with you, you still have to wear a mask because, well, we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, which tells me that the vaccines either aren't working or don't work very well. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, you can see the Rittenhouse thing as a victory, but it's not a victory because it never should have been, it's gone as far as it did. And the kind of people who push that are the people pushing the vaccines. They're pushing it. And I'm not anti-vax. I've been vaccinated. I don't have so much a problem with that. I have a problem with what, it's not about vaccines. It's about control. It's like they say about gun control. It's not about guns. This is about control. And they're trying to control you. And if they can get away with this, the next thing is going to be, well, you need to have an identity chip planted underneath your the skin on the back of your head or something. So in case you're dead and you wash up somewhere and we can't identify you, we can just scan this chip and figure out who you are. Or... You know, when we arrest you, we can we can scan your chip and get all your info. I mean, the, that kind of thing is coming. I mean, it, it has to. That's what this leads to. They wouldn't push this so hard for its own sake. They're pushing it hard for a further goal, a further agenda. And, and I've talked way too much about this, but this is the country we're living in. This is this is the book. 1984 so welcome to it welcome to it and another part of 1984 i don't know what primer sold for in 1984 but i wish they sold for that price today 
uh, primers are starting to come back you know for hand loading primers are starting to come back and that's a good thing I really like seeing that unfortunately they're selling for about two and a half yeah about two and a half times of what they were before so thirty dollars in primers is now like 80 bucks is that two and a half times yeah or 33 dollars in primers whatever they were whatever they were going for you know it's it's an it's an obscenity used to be that you could get primers under 20 bucks you know 15 20 dollars for i remember this is not that long ago thousand primers 14 15 dollars sometimes you can find them on sale you know and that makes hand loading a lot more financially advantageous the only thing i will say is when you look at the price of factory ammo even cheap factory ammo even tall ammo um and the price of that is all coming down but it's still it's still sky high uh, when you look at the cost of the primers and hand loading vis-a-vis -vis loaded factory rounds it's still quite a bit cheaper but you know it's there's a there's a certain pressure point where it's not going to you know being cheaper there's something between being horribly expensive and outrageously priced I mean what's the delta between the two so I don't know but primers are coming back um, right now I'm not willing to pay eighty dollars for a thousand primers um, I'm hoping that maybe it comes down to sixty dollars and then I and with large pistol primers which is my my biggest need and then we'll just kind of go from there all right another thing that has come up is you know there was a um, when Springfield Armory Incorporated brought out their SA-35, their Browning High Power Clone. Uh, the first thing everybody did was run it and look at it to see if it had NIM parts. And NIM is something in metal MIM parts, metal injection molding, something like that. Basically powdered metal, probably mixed with some sort of bond or something. Um, and uh, some sort of polymer with to hold it all together and it's plopped into a mold then brought out final machined and put in there is it something that I really like well I, I probably don't but I probably do own a few guns that have <laughs> mim, part, mim parts in it and I don't even know I'm sure the Ruger Wrangler has mim parts in it because that's that is a gun that has just been optimized for inexpensive production and it's a good gun it's a very good gun so I'm I'm really happy I bought that and I was tempted I've been tempted a couple times for the Heritage Rough Riders but the Ruger is the gun you know just trust me the Ruger is the gun you want to buy so I really like that um, I don't know I haven't really bought any other modern guns that probably have MIM parts although I'm, I'm sure that there's some here and there you know I mean you know cast parts are not a bad deal um, a lot of guys used to get all upset about cast receivers on the M1A, the Springfield Armory M1A, and and there's there've been flame wars and, and all kinds of ignoramuses and and all kinds of nonsense about it on firearms forums for decades. And uh, you know, frankly, 
you know, usage tells us that there's no difference, that they're just fine. So I don't really get ups that upset about it. And I'm sure that if I bought something new, like a, I don't know about Glock, I don't know about Smith & Wesson, but I'm sure a lot of these polymer-framed automatics are <laughs> chock full of, of them parts. That's just the way they get, way it is. You know, you have to make something affordable sometimes. But being all that said, I prefer guns that have, you know, forged and machined metal parts. Just part of that traditionalist thing. I prefer that. And the other ones I, I you know just not really all that crazy about so that and you know that's another reason i don't care for that uh what would stoner do rifle which the fact they use stoner name on that is really a that's really low class but that's just my viewpoint um you know the polymer frame and combination buttstock lower they use you know yeah i'm, I'm just not really excited about that um, you know, as a gamer gun, I guess it's fine, and they they love it, and you know they take it to Finland and do Finnish brutality and all the rest of it. So we shall see. But I I just I'm just not excited about that. I like the older parts. I don't even like aluminum frame guns very much. I have a couple, but I don't really like them. So be that as it may. Mim parts, metal injection molding. Oh, a couple other things. One of the things that, that it never seems to... I listen to quite a few podcasts, uh, firearms related, and, and a few other different kinds. But, you know, podcasting has been something that a lot of younger people have been doing. And man alive, there's some of them that just... Are they disrespectful or what? If you were born before 1970... They they hate you. I mean, you're the boomer to them. You are the asshole. And they blame everything bad, all the all the firearms myths and all the other things. They blame on you, the boomers. They blame on the boomers. Frankly, that's a bunch of a bunch of horse crap. And um, you know, it's it's amazing the some of the stuff that, that they get blamed for. A lot of things, when you've been around and I hate to say I've been around long enough to know it, but I've been around long enough to know that a lot of the stuff that's been inherited through the shooting community was inherited through the greatest generation, the World War II and Korea generation, and the generation before. Yeah, the generation before. Uh, a lot of that, a lot of the stuff that, that they attribute to boomers are in are things that are just legacy that have been passed down and, and the boomers are now taking the blame for it. One of the funniest one of the funniest ones was just how they treat US service rifles. I mean, they would never say anything about low number Springfields. Although they would they would say, Oh, you know, you you could find people that say they were terrible and blew up. But it was the Eddystone Enfield was the most dangerous US service rifle because the receiver would crack and, and all the rest of it. Total hogwash. Completely untrue. Uh, the only times the receiver has cracked is when they're trying to change out barrels. And that's because they were automated. There was an automated barrel installation thing that put them in really tight when they were first built. So it takes some it takes some uh, know-how to get a barrel out and uh, replace it from a 1917 rifle. But... Uh, they loved the Springfield. They thought the Springfield was the greatest rifle that there was. 
they thought that the uh, 1917 was was garbage um, for a U.S. rifle. It's still better than any foreign rifle, but it's garbage for a U.S. rifle. Uh, the M1 was a great rifle. The M16 was garbage. The AR-15, all the derivatives are complete garbage. Uh, and, you know, went on from there. Uh, a lot of that was, you know, a lot of that gets attributed to the boomers, but it's really not true. It, it was really the generation before. Same thing with the love affair with the 38 Special. I would actually say the boomers were the ones that broke that because they brought in the 9mm Wonder Guns in the 80s when they were in their 30s and 40s. Um, they were the ones that have the big impetus behind the bringing the 9mm in that first big 9mm wave that sort of abated a little bit with the introduction of the 40 Smith & Wesson and then the 40 Smith & Wesson people looked at, it, looked at it, kind of scratched their head and, and said, hmm, I don't know about this. This just doesn't seem to be what we thought it was and gone away. I, I personally think it's a great cartridge. I, I'm, I'm a big... You know, my position has always been larger bullet, large, big diameter bullet is good. Smaller, fast bullet, not quite as good. It may be okay, but it's not quite as good. Uh, but they're fun to shoot. I mean, 9mm are fun to shoot. I like them. I enjoy them. But I really believe the big bullet gun is a the big bullet revolver or auto auto pistol is the one you really want to have it's the one you really want to have um anyway the other thing is the quote obsession quote unquote with the 1911 that's not a boomer thing that that was inherited and it actually started with the world war one generation they thought that was the greatest handgun there was and you know they were they were right of course but you know and then through world war ii it got even stronger korea and vietnam it, it was it was great and then in 1984 when you know the army had been looking kind of like the m16 for for decades they had been testing replacements and they tested oddly enough the walther p38 which they were never going to adopt they were never going to adopt a a former Nazi designed weapon. They just weren't going to do it. They were actually looking for a sh the short, a short barreled version of that for general officers. I assume that's because most generals by, you know, in the fifties and sixties had, had served multiple tours in NATO and in Germany. And, you know, Germany by that time was a, a uh, NATO partner. And, and, you know, I, I think there was a lot of, yeah, we're all on the same side, so we'll, we'll we'll use this cool pistol. But they tested that, and they, of course they never adopted it. And the other one that was the Smith and Wesson 39, which that would have been an interesting choice, a very very interesting choice, because that's a good pistol. Even today, that's a very good pistol. I have a 439 I gave to my brother that I wish I had never given my brother, but I wish I'd kept it and given him something else, but. You know, hey, it's a it's a great gun. It really the 439, the Model 39 series, is an absolutely great gun. Lightweight, you know, single stack. It's all that single stack goodness. And you notice that they're kind of going back to single stacks. They they kind of, it's this Jekyll and Hyde thing of hey, we want to make these nice, slim, cool guns that have just enough firepower. So we'll do the single stack thing. 
then it's like well if we just made it a little wider we could put a double stack in there and then we could have 12 rounds instead of nine or or eight you know however that all goes whatever your taste is i like a gun that fits my hand because um, i can always reload um, and i like a gun that's thin enough to to hide pretty well and um but anyway they've gone back and forth with all that and that was you know again those were generations before the, the boomers weren't making decisions in the 60s they were all in their 20s they were early 20s they weren't making the big decisions about what to same thing with the m16 that was a oh who is it jacob deavers world war ii general was you know he he worked for armalite um stoner was kind of a greater generation guy he was he was post-war U.S. Marine, I think, you know, just post-war. Um, all those guys, you know, developing that in the late 50s were not boomers. Boomers were still watching Howdy Doody and the Mickey Mouse Club then. So we inherited a lot of this stuff from, from farther back. And it's amazing to see how, how farther back that stuff went. I, I've got to find... And, you know, I wish someday they would just put together an anthology of everything that Elmer Keith wrote that is somehow indexable because it would be very fun. Elmer Keith didn't even like the, he was so old fashioned. He didn't even like the M1 rifle. <laughs> he was a guy just, who was born in 1899, didn't like the M1. He thought, he thought the spring, he couldn't understand why we adopted that uh, instead of, and, and replaced the Springfield with it. You know, so it's, it's really funny to, to, to listen and to watch and to read some of these older accounts of uh, what what people who are icons in the firearm industry thought of a design which turns out to be brilliant and how it was poo-pooed right up front you know by by quote the people in the know it's a very very um you know very interesting thing to to read we just take it all for granted now that you know all of these designs were the minute they they hit the market they were great they were brilliant designs but as we see today every design when it hits the market is touted as the greatest thing since sliced bread and then usually after after a little bit of, after time and people regain their sanity they kind of look around and say i'm not not too sure i think that's going to befall the ruger 57 i think the ruger 57 people are going to say yeah this is really cool but I don't really want one. You know, it's, I call it the Corvette syndrome. Everybody likes it and everybody thinks it would be cool to have, but nobody goes out there and plunks their money down on it because there's some impracticality which they just can't get past. Um, with 5.7, I think it's going to be ammo cost. And I also think that it's going to be, people are going to shoot some game with it. And if it doesn't, perform the way they think and right now basically they're selling it that it's going to be like 556 nato which it's not it's not going to have that effect but they're selling it like that so when it doesn't perform like that they're going to say eh, you know for its size and everything else it's a dog so i'm not really going to do this I'm not really going to do it so those are some of the inheritances we've gotten from the the baby boomer the generations before the baby boomers and it's the legacy that they've kind of kind of passed down uh you know and i and you know just the things that popped to your mind like the winchester 94 i really like the 94 
I really like it. I have one. I've had one since I was a kid. But I have to tell you, <laughs> I think it's a crummy deer rifle. It is so freaking crummy. When I was a kid, it's like, wow, you know, everybody, your introduction to adulthood and, and deer hunting was, you have a 30-30. And I mean, everybody had them. I mean, everybody had them. Your 12th or 13th birthday, you got a 30-30, you know. And, uh, you know, we'd take it out hunting. Now, I was doing west, I was, we were in the west, so longer distances and all that. And I'm like, I, I would look at this and, pardon my language, but I'd say, what the fuck? The people I'm hunting with are using bolt-action rifles in like 308 or 30-06 with scopes on them. And I have a goddamn 30-30 with open sights. How, how is this, how does this work? How is it that what I have is better for a beginner than what they have? How is open sights, and we're talking 200 and in some cases, 250, maybe even a 300-yard shot. That's not a long shot in the West sometimes. Or I should say it's a long shot on game, but, you know, you can often see game at two and 300 yards because, you know, you break into the open or you're on the, you know, the, the a ridge and you're looking over and you see on another ridge, you see the game animal and you can see it, you can hit it. But, hey, man, what am I doing with this freaking 30-30, you know? The 30-30 was great for dense cover, short ranges, deer stands, all that kind of stuff. 30-30 works great. Out west, you know, like I said, you know, if the if they're good if the rifle that the people who know what they're doing use looks so different and is equipped differently than mine, what am I doing with this? And the answer was, well that's what people start with. And then when you get good, you get a better gun. And it's like, oh, okay <laughs> we don't do that anymore you notice we don't do that anymore if you have a 12 or 13 year old boy they you know you get a they've even made the um like the hoa mini action guns uh in in whatever appropriate caliber and they they come with the the cheapo nico sterling scope on it you know i mean you get that little package and hey the kid has got something that looks like what dad or uncle or grandpa is carrying so okay he can he can he can do this but when i'm carrying something that looks like matt dillon should have it in in dodge city and everybody else has got this bolt action and and all that i i just sat there and said wait this this doesn't work and it doesn't and that's that's one of the reasons if they were still making it today the way they used to and I mean, I know Winchester, you can buy the ones branded by Winchester and all that. They, they cost like an incredible amount of money. But it used to be that was one of the most inexpensive rifles you could get was a Winchester 3030. And they're, they're fantastically well made. I mean, they're, they're sturdy. They're great guns in so many ways. But they're not competitive with a bolt action, you know, heavy 30 caliber scope sighted rifle they're just a completely different thing out west anyway out east they they probably uh held their ground a little bit better but so that was a that was a legacy we got from from the world war one generation you know 1894 world war one generation thought lever actions were very cool so did the generation before them 
and we inherited all the way that all the way down to you know it's it's filtered down into modern times not nearly as strong but it's filtered in the uh, modern times uh, same thing the cold 1873 peacemaker always a pistol I've had a hard time shooting well really well because I don't think the pistols shoot that well is part of the problem I have a lot better better luck with Ruger Blackhawks but I will tell you compared to compared to my favorites the end frame Smith and Wesson they they pale in comparison every revolver is inferior to that at least for me and I think for a lot of people uh, you know the end frame Smith and Wesson the K frame Smith and Wesson are absolutely the greatest revolvers ever made and you know the cold peacemaker has a lot of nostalgia it's beautiful it's it's got this that and the other thing but frankly it's a pain in the butt to shoot i don't know why it just does not shoot well for me now i can shoot cap and ball six guns which have a similar design i can shoot those actually better than the peacemaker so you figure it out i just can't but i do like I do like the styling and the history, but again, those were produced up till World War II, then they stopped during the war, and then in the mid-50s, again, most boomers were still in diapers then, um, that greatest generation who had been watching the, the, the serial westerns in the theaters and then started watching it on TV, and the, even the generation before, they wanted peacemakers, and therefore the cult third generation peacemaker came out strictly for that market. Strictly for that market. And with cowboy action shooting, then the, the Italian uh, uh, arms makers got in there producing, you know, basically reproductions of almost anything. You can find a reproduction of almost any old West gun. And, and frankly, the younger people... It was the boomers were part of that, but it was the generation before really liked the old west, the old west guns, and you know started with kind of the '92 copies, and they, they, those things go back to the '50s, and uh, you can still get you can still get like 1876 Winchester and of course Sharps and some of these other things that that were out there. I always thought the coolest one was the 1886 Winchester. Of course, I've I've never actually bought one, but but I always thought they were cool. It's one of those things. That's another another Corvette syndrome thing. Of yeah, that'd be really cool to have, but I'm not really gonna lay out the the coinage for it. So there you go. All right, that's enough of that. Uh, another thing. Okay, a friend of mine runs a company that you can Google on the internet called Cavalry Ammunition, and I think it's CavalryAmmunition.com. And he's introduced something which I think is very cool, and uh, I, I'm going to order some to see how it how it actually works. But he apparently has some powder-coated or high-tech-coated low-recoil 9mm ammunition, which I assume is loaded below the velocities that we would normally expect uh, from 9mm ammunition and uh, I want to see how he's really balanced that because I think it's very possible to balance that with functioning in a variety of firearms and uh, you know that's good ammo that is a great idea because a lot of people like hot rotted 9mm um, you know some of the beauty of a 9mm is not so much having a hot rod round 
but it's ha having the capacity. So it's if you've got low recoil rounds that a new shooter or you know what used to be the the female shooters you know who who are just kind of starting out or don't like you know the the heavy recoil. If you've got a round that is low recoil that and that they'll shoot and and like uh, all of a sudden you've got you know there's there's the capacity you're not giving up what you're giving up in recoil and, and all that you're making up for in capacity so uh, kind of an interesting idea we'll see how it goes we'll see how it works but um, I'm not really sure that there's gonna be a big market for that but I think there'll be some market for it and uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see where that goes Okay, let's start my, actually my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And the first question, it's a little technical, and if you don't cast or hand load, you may, you may want to go past this. But um, anyway, does the Lee 405 grain hollow base 4570 bullet, does the base of that actually expand to fit the bore of the older trapdoor rifles. And the trapdoor is the 1873 Springfield, you know, the kind they used at Custer's Last Stand and all the way up through the Indian Wars. And even as a reserve rifle in the uh, Spanish-American War, there are a lot of them around. They're great rifles. They're a lot of, they're a hoot. They are a lot of fun to shoot. And they're in this great the, the beauty of the Trapdoor Springfield is it's in 4570, so, you know, brass and appropriate uh, loads. Again, our friends at Cavalry Ammunition have Trapdoor appropriate loads that you can use in these and uh, have a lot of fun. But that bullet is a, it's unusual for Lee because most Lee bullets are kind of very standard not very daring designs <laughs> and in fact uh, if they would give me about 30 minutes in their engineering department you know we could make a lot better bullets that they could be selling but that's a lot better molds that they could be selling so but anyway uh, that way they actually developed that in concert with a guy who was a a um, big time black powder shooter who knew trapdoors inside and out and who knew the old loads the old military loads of the trapdoor springfield and what that bullet is it's basically the 500 grain bullet which they didn't want to use anymore because it recoiled a lot and you know for for us modern guys who are a little bit bigger and we have you know stronger upper bodies it's not that big of a deal but you think about people in the late 1800s who were very small. They they didn't weight lift. They didn't do anything. They were they were a lot scrawny. Their their physic their physiques were a lot different than ours. So in order to keep them from getting pummeled by these you know large bore black powder cartridges, and especially the 4570 military load with a 500 grain bullet. They designed a bullet that had essentially the same surface bearing characteristics of the 500, but only weighed 405 grains because they essentially hollowed out the base and took about 95 grains out of it. 
And uh, I've never done a scientific test, but in looking at the bottom of that bullet and in looking at one of my 95 grain 30 caliber pistol bullets that I cast, the volume looks about the same. It, it's not like it'll fit in there because it won't. But the volume looks pretty much the same. So, you know, I think that, that that's what they did. But at the skirt of that bullet, the part where they've hollowed it out, is way too thick for it to expand to fill the bore kind of the way that the mini a bullet did in the uh, rifled muskets it, it does not work the same way it's simply a mechanism to make the bullet lighter and to lessen the recoil um, it's a brilliant bullet brilliant design it's easy to cast the mold yeah, again, the mold is under 30 bucks, and so you can you can get that and you can pop those things out. And it's a single cavity mold because of the complexity of putting this plug in. And it's also a rarity for Lee molds because it's a top pour, a nose, they call them nose pour mold, you know, where you normally you, you fill them up and the first thing that gets filled is the nose and it comes all the way back to the base and then you you knock off the sprue and and you see the the flat base well this is the opposite you see the flat point of the nose because it fills in what we would consider to be upside down so that's a very cool and they may have one or two they used to have a couple of hollow point molds that work the same way but i don't know that they actually even have those anymore because you know a single cavity mold just doesn't turn out especially for pistol bullets just doesn't turn out the volume you need you can get away with it with a rifle you can get away with it because you're not going to shoot 100 rounds out of a trapdoor in one range session that that usually just doesn't happen i think the 3030 mold i have is also i think that's also a single but uh, that the 150 grain 309, but I think the 180 grain 309s I have are, are is a double. I don't even think they sell the single ones anymore. But you know, over the years, you, you kind of get what you get. And so, to get back to it, it is a single nose pour, single cavity nose pour mold, and it's a really good one. And uh, it's a really good one if you. If you want to shoot your trapdoor, that's really a way to go. Uh, the other bullet that I want to try is the 300 grain, three radius ogive bullet in 4.59, and uh, you know that'll be an interesting bullet to try in the uh, the trapdoor. Also, it's not a traditional bullet, but you know everybody says they shoot very well, so I want to see for myself. You know, and I have to tell you. When I sit there, and I've, I've not done this to every, every one, but those Lee molds, when they say it's a 309 bullet, that's exactly what it comes out as. Um, I was amazed. I was just simply amazed how accurate um, that the, uh, that mold, their molds really are. Um, they, they've, the 312 bullets come out 312. These these ones they, they come out I mean I don't know what it is about the aluminum mold but uh, they, they come out and they really make it easy to size and and their little sizing tools I used to think oh these are these are like low rent sizing things but man I swish the bullets around I keep an old um, just a plastic um, empty powder 
jug, one pound powder jug, and I took the took the label off it so it doesn't get used for anything else or confused or anything else. And I just put the bullets in there. I pour the liquid Alex in there, and then I just turn it around in my hands for about 10 minutes, or a few minutes anyway. And uh, then I look inside, and I can see that they're all evenly coated. I put them out, spread them out on a cookie sheet, and turn them all up so that they're all kind of standing up. They dry, and everybody's happy, you know. Everybody's happy. Um, the bullets I do powder coat. Um, the smokeless powder bullets I powder coat. You know, you when you run them through the Lee uh, sizer, um, the one that fits on your press, and you just put it on top of the ram, and it just kind of puts it right up through there. Hey, it it sizes those things exactly, and and uh, you know I'm really looking forward to it. Those those powder coated bullets, you know, they, it, the powder coating definitely uh, stays there, so it's it's going to be squared away. It's going to be a lot of fun to use. So they they do an excellent job. Lee molds are one of the great unsung things. A lot of people turn their nose up at them, but they turn out some really good bullets. I've been doing a lot of casting with them, so I kind of enjoy that. One of the things I found, I found a, it's not 250 grain, I think it's, yeah, I think it's about a 250 grain bullet. I'd have to look at it exactly, but it's a, a 456. And so I'm like, yeah, these, this will be the ticket for the Webley. If I can, if I can get my auto rim brass uh, expanded enough to take this four, five, six bullet, it ought to be a very interesting uh, one to use in the Webley because that should that should fill the bore pretty well. The Webley is notionally four, five, five, so four, five, six would be just about right. So we'll see how that works. If that doesn't really work. I may use an expander from 4570 dies to, to try to get that opened up a little bit. So we'll see how it goes. Maybe if I don't, I probably won't resize brass. Probably won't resize the brass and see how it is. It'll take a little tinkering, but I'll get some 456 loads out of it. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, the next thing. Woo! Hey! This is a question, interesting question. I was watching an old Western, and I saw, and I think it was John Wayne, but I, I can't remember, but I saw on their pistol belt about halfway through their cartridges, which were 45 Colt, I guess, that there was a 4570 on the pistol belt halfway through. Why would someone do this? Um, the only reason I can think of is that if you're fighting if you're fighting a a long range war battle or whatever in the old west and you're taking cartridge out, taking cartridges out of your belt when you find that when you touch that 4570 and realize what it is you know you're halfway through your cartridges um, to me it seems like a non problem i mean i don't know that many gunfights in the old west lasted a whole belt of cartridges so i'm not a uh, i'm not a huge huge fan and i don't and, and actually actually you sit there and you go well what what advantage is it of you to know that you're halfway through you know i mean does it really help maybe if you were down to your last six that would at least tell you something that's that's more useful rather than well you're halfway through if you're down to your last six you know hey you know the next ones i pop out of this and then do you really want to give up a belt loop 
you know, I mean, those things only hold usually about 20, about 20. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I'd want to give up a belt loop and do that. And it certainly will not work if you're shooting a 38. Yeah, if you're shooting anything other than a 45 caliber, that's not going to work. Although I suppose you could use some other kind of cartridge in uh, um, a pistol belt to do the same thing. Maybe a crag. If you're shooting a 38 special, maybe you could use a crag round, 30-40 crag to, to do that. But I don't know. It's not anything that I would... Uh, it's not anything I really do. It's it just... it. You know, it's one of those things... And they've they've called this in the past, but it's an ingenious solution to a non-existent problem, you know, or it's a an answer looking for a problem. That's really what it is. Okay, here's our last question, and it's I asked this on another I asked this on another podcast, but I load 10 millimeter. My loads won't work in two of my three guns. One gun is a 1911. The other gun is a 10 millimeter Glock, and my third gun is an AR-style pistol with a pistol brace. My loads will work in the AR-style pistol with a pistol brace, but will not work in the other two guns. It seems that they're getting caught on the feed ramp and not cycling. Okay. First of all, without seeing the gun and all that, I can't really tell. But I know what the problem is. I can tell you right now, I know exactly what the problem is. <clears throat> the problem is, and, and there's some problems related to it that I'll cover real quickly, but the main problem is the gun is be the two guns that are the traditional handguns are being what we would call limp-wristed, which is not an insult, but... The shooter is anticipating recoil, and he's breaking his the hold on his wrist so that the gun is recoiling back. It's, it's like when you anticipate recoil, you do strange things. The reason the, the loads are working in the brace gun is because he's holding that, and it's braced up against his shoulder, and the gun's not moving. But a lot of times when you anticipate recoil, you can you can start to bring your your uh, wrist back and the gun doesn't have a solid fixture your hand to recoil against so what happens is the gun is malfunctioning because the slide isn't going all the way back and it's even if it picks up the round it doesn't it's not forcing it into the chamber the way it would and the way to test this is take the two pistols go find a ransom rest and see if your loads operate and function the pistol and if they do then the shooter is the problem if you don't have a ransom rest then I would get a buddy get somebody who's used to shooting especially if they're used to shooting uh, 10 millimeter and larger handguns and have them shoot from a sandbag rest and see if they have the same problem chances are they will not chances are they will not um you know and this affects all shooters no matter what you anticipate recoil even with a 22 and you can wind up usually just pulling your shots off i can tell you this that when i shoot my 50 desert eagle i usually 
um, use my 44 Desert Eagle as like a training gun. So when I'm shooting really well with a 44, then I move to the 50. If I just pick up the 50 cold, in the past I've anticipated recoil and, and have had some of the same kind of problems. Usually I'm just throwing shots off. Usually the gun still still functions. But you can get a... This, this was notorious with 1911s. If you don't hold that that pistol solid in your hand if you kind of break your wrist and you you start flipping the gun back in anticipation of recoil before it's ready to go the, the gun won't work the gun won't work handguns have to be held semi-automatic handguns have to be held firmly in the hand to work okay the big frame ar and ak type guns you know think think you know you you would want to you want them braced into your shoulder or your body so they can uh so they can do that, and that's why how semi-automatic rifles work. If you if you didn't if you just tried to hold them say away and had nothing nothing uh, for them to rest up against the butt plate, uh, you're gonna sometimes get with different guns you will get uh, malfunctions. I had a uh, an acquaintance that I shot with years ago, and he would take he would never pull a rifle back into his shoulder you know with firm grasp he, he just he didn't get the marksmanship fundamentals and th this is again yeah this is a long time ago 25 years ago maybe and he would get like he got my m1a to malfunction and he, then he got my svt40 to malfunction and you know he would get rifles that would double because he's not pulling them back into his body and uh, I sit, sat there and had to, you know, give him a course on how to actually shoot a gun before he, uh, um, <laughs> before he could continue because he was, he was just messing it up. He was really messing it up. So a lot of times we have to admit it's the shooter, but if the loads are working in two or one or two out of three guns, I would look at the shooter. And since at this case, the two traditional handguns are the problem and the braced carbine appears to be normal then that's okay other variables can be can be springs recoil springs but i would not go there until i did the first test that i already already talked about um, you know a couple other things would be make sure your hand loads duplicate the factory ballistics as close as you safely can and the closer you get to those factory ballistics the more reliable they'll be that's just the way the guns the gun is designed for that if your gun is designed for a 115 or 124 grain nine millimeter round nose bullet if you the closest you can get to that you will have success you know if you have a powder coated lead bullet at 124 grains and you're loading it to nearly the velocity that the factory guys are you know within safety you know within recommended loads uh, you're going to have a very reliable gun that's just the way it is um, if you're of course keeping with overall length and all the rest of it but I'm just really talking about bullet weight bullet contour and power and just the powder charge to produce something similar to the kind of energy and velocity so that the gun works well because you look at look at the gun it's all about friction and it's all about spring power and everything else you've got to have the energy to push that to push that uh, mechanism back and make it work and 
the other thing you have to have is a good solid foundation i.e you know a good solid hold on the gun so that it it backs into something solid and the the mechanical parts can work well that's it for this edition of old school guns the uh, podcast that tells you like it is and again you can always email questions and comments to kbmakel at aol.com and to podbean you can leave always leave a question there but for right now this is it and this is old school guns out